0: So today we're starting a new series, uh, Don't Go to Church, Be the Church. Um, what I hope is that we spend the next few weeks looking at um, spiritual gifts, uh, why God gives spiritual gifts to the church, and how do we how do we practice them within the life of the church. And we have spent, if you've been with us in August, we have spent the last four weeks uh, talking about our theology of grace. And uh, I think this is a perfect series to help follow up that because what I don't want us to do is I don't want us to just understand grace, to intellectually be able to define grace. I want us to be the church, to make grace visible in the community that we live in. So I'm going to invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles in an I don't always say this, uh, but it is okay to bring your Bible to church. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 58, and we are going to spend most of our day right here in Isaiah 58. Now, the truth is, if you understand grace, you extend it. I mean, if you have experienced deep in your gut what what it means to be broken and what it means to be helpless, and you have had the mercy of God lavished upon you, the delight of God extend to you, uh, then you're hard-pressed to judge other people. You're slow to, to marginalize anyone because you understand that while you were at your worst, Christ died for you. Now, the truth is the series is is really designed around generosity. Now I don't want you to think that we're doing a tithing series, that this is all about funding. It has nothing really to do with that. It, it has to do with living that joy-filled life that God desires for you. And what we see is that generous people are joyful people. So let's look at Isaiah 58. What Isaiah does is he begins to show us what grace doesn't look like and what grace does look like. And my hope is that as we think think about our own lives this morning, that we're able to begin to look and see where in certain areas of our life grace is not visible. Now, you don't ultimately get to be generous people by activity. You get to be generous As you experience the wonder and awe of God in your life. So let's start looking at verse 1. The scripture reads this as, Shout loudly. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their crime, to the house of Jacob their sins. And that's why you want to come to church, right? I mean, it's Labor Day weekend. You want to come to church so that we can announce your sin. No, you want the you want the loving message. You want to know that God loves you and you want to hear that message on provenient grace that God's love is for everyone and you want to hear sanctifying grace that God's redeeming you. Uh, but that's not the call that God gave Isaiah. If you go back and look in Isaiah 6. Uh, There's a passage that many of you may be familiar with, and the Lord says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah responds, send me. Do you know how God responds to Isaiah? He says, go and tell the people who are not going to listen to you. Go and and tell the people who are not going to hear you. Go and and tell the people who are not going to care. That's the call that every minister wants, right? No. But that's the call that Isaiah gets. And so, he begins to formulate his message. He begins to try to figure out what he's going to preach to the people. And God says, go and declare their transgressions and their sins. And so then in verse 2, we get this. They seek me day after day, desiring knowledge of my ways, like a nation that acted righteously, that didn't abandon their God. They ask me for righteous judgments, wanting to be close to God. Why do we fast and you don't see? Why do we afflict ourselves and you don't notice? Yet on your fast day, you do whatever you want and oppress all your workers. Really what we see here is that the word of God says that grace is not made visible with with just simply religious activity. You can't spot genuine love for for Jesus Christ uh, through religious activity alone. Now, I'm a preacher. I'm not against religious activity. But... I am against, like I think the Bible is, I am against religious activity that seeks to purchase favor from God. It doesn't work that way. You cannot purchase something that is freely given. I mean, it is by grace we've been saved. The faith to believe was given to us by God, and faith to believe in his grace was given to us. The Bible says in Ephesians that we don't have We have nothing to boast in. You have nothing to boast in. Religious activity cannot purchase you the favor of God. It is granted to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is the only righteousness that you will ever have that is acceptable to God. See, we have to realize that religious activity is not a relationship. If if our relationship with God becomes rote and intellectual, Only it subtracts from a legitimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to look at the language we use when we think about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have to understand that if we're seeking to to earn God's favor, that it's exhausting. There is no rest in it. Kind of the The image I think of is someone who's working 12, 15 hours a day to to pay a mortgage that they don't owe. And their family calls and says, when are you coming home? You know, our son's got a soccer game. Our daughter's got a dance recital. When are you going to get, well, I can't come to that because... Because I got to work. Why have you got to work? I got to I got to make overtime. I got to get overtime pay so that I can pay the bills. What bills do we owe? We got to pay the mortgage. We don't owe a, a mortgage. Do you see how absurd that would be? Religious activity does not bring legitimate love. And so the Lord tells Isaiah, "Go and tell them." I mean, the fast that I seek. Tell them about the fast that I desire. And you think, well, should I just not do religious activity then? No. I mean, the fact that the mortgage is paid doesn't mean that you don't live there. Hang out in the house and enjoy the relationship. If we're resting in God, then we're motivated to, to serve other people and to, to give of ourselves and to empty ourselves. We're motivated by the fact that it's paid in full The other thing that we notice in this passage is that the people of God are trying to to use God to get something beyond God. Why have we fasted and you haven't seen us? Why have you not given us what we wanted? See, they think they can use God to get what they want. Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why doesn't God give me what I want? Think about your prayers. Are you spending your time, are you spending your prayers talking to God about getting the things that you think you need? Or are you just spending time with God? So we go back to our text and verse 4 it says, You quarrel and brawl and then you fast. You hit each other violently with your fists. You shouldn't fast as you're doing today if you want to make your voice heard on high. See, what we see is that when grace is not present, that there's, there's something divisive in our relationships. It seems to, to divide us and have violence among us. This text is somewhat humorous to me when you think about the fact that they're fasting. They're fasting. They're trying to, to spend time with God. We have to think about the context. When they fast a meal, we tend to think, okay, well, that's 30 to 45 minutes of their day that they're setting aside, and they're going to focus on God for that 30 to 45 minutes. But we have to remember that this is an agrarian society, and so preparation of the meal itself would take hours. So they're setting, when they set a meal, they're setting aside two, three, four hours. And yet somewhere along the way, This has not created humility in their hearts. This has made them violent. Have you ever thought about the word hangry? That moment where hunger and anger collide? The other day, uh, Friday night, uh, Claire and Lydia and I were were shopping, and we had not eaten lunch, and all of a sudden we kind of turned to each other and realized that we were getting close to, to hangry. Because we knew that we needed to eat and we need to eat now. It makes you operate in a way that is contrary to how you normally would operate. I mean, what's happened in this text is their fast, it didn't lead to humility, it turned them violent towards each other. And so Isaiah begins to say, okay, this is what grace does not look like. Now let me show you what grace looks like in our lives. Look at verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I choose, a day of self-affliction, of bending one's head like a reed, and of lying down in mourning clothing and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Grace is made visible when the people of God walk in humility, when there's a lowliness of heart in knowing that there is something bigger and something more important to us. It's a, a lowliness of posture that has us bowing our heads and saying, You're worthy, God. You're holy, God. I'm unworthy. You're magnificent. I'm not. It has us in mourning clothing, sackcloth and ashes. What that simply means is there's a confession of our great need and of our great failure before the holiness of God. God. Romans 8 makes it clear that you and I are being conformed into the image of God. We're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says it this way. Listen to this. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. For all of us, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your future. This is my future. The more we mature in our faith, the more humility we walk in. The more we gladly step into obedience that leads to death and ultimately leads to life. See, our narrative is not that we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Our narrative is not that we make it happen. Our narrative is not that we overcome, that we get it done. Our narrative as a follower of Jesus Christ is that it is God, via his grace, granting us faith to put in that grace that he has saved us. He has rescued us. He has marked us. He has made us who we are. That's our story. The longer we follow him, the more and more we are, we are marked by a lowliness of heart. Now, one of the greatest struggles that we have is pride. Most of our disobedience, and I might would even say all of our disobediences, but, but most of our di- disobedience is, is tied to, to us saying, I'm smarter than God. My plan is better than God's plan. I I know more for my life or I, I know what my life needs more than God does. Now you might never say that, but if we look back and we look at our disobediences, we realize that pride is at the heart of most of our difficulties. What we want is we want asterisks by certain pieces of scripture. We want an asterisk to certain commands because we don't want to do them. Because we know what's best for us. That piece of scripture may be fine for all of you, but it doesn't apply to me. See, what we see here is that grace is made, vi- is made visible. Grace is made visible to the, to the people of the world when the people of God are humble. Then look at verse 6. Isn't this the fast I choose releasing wicked restraints and tying the ropes of a yoke setting free the mistreated and breaking every yoke see grace is made visible grace is made visible first in humility and secondly when the people of god are moved to action to help the overwhelmed and to help the oppressed and to help the hungry and to help the homeless and to help the people who are flooded out of their homes i really want you to get this that we we are people who realize we were helpless and God helped us in our helplessness. And when you get that, when you really understand that, you realize you were, that you were not, you didn't pick yourself up out of the muck and the mire. You were picked up out of the muck and the mire. When you realize that God is the one who saved you, the one who opened your heart to believe that it was his grace that was lavished upon you, you can't help but extend it. And your eyes begin to drift to those who are helpless. If you think that God saved you because you're awesome. If you think that God saved you because you're good enough. You deserve it. The truth is your eyes will rarely ever go to the oppressed. To those who are overwhelmed. But when you understand that when you were at your darkest moment, when you were at your worst, that Christ died for you, if you understand that you were helpless and that you were helped, then you can't help but begin to see other people and want to help them. In verse 7, we read, isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house? covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family. See, grace is made, vi- is made visible when the people of God begin to die to themselves. That's the great paradox of the Christian faith. You want life, you want joy, you want fullness, you want life of abundance the way that Jesus describes it. You've got to begin to die to yourself. Following Jesus Christ involves sacrifice. It involves picking up your cross and following after him. And every single one of us who are a follower of Jesus Christ sitting in this room this morning, we have laid down certain desires and wants to pursue a greater desire. There is sacrifice that is involved. I mean, I want you to imagine what it would look like if we in this room, every single one of us began to operate with a mindset of don't worry about me. me, tell me about you. Don't worry about what's going on here. What's going on over there? And then you can make a tangent, kind of, kind of move that into certain areas of your life. Can you imagine what your marriage would look like if you began to focus on the interest of the other person? Think about your the relationships you have with those that you work with, those that you go to school with. Think about what happened in the church if we began to focus on those outside the walls, rather than those of us inside the walls. Freedom is found in death to self. Life is found, life of abundance is found in dying to self. And so grace is made visible. According to the prophet Isaiah, grace is made visible when the people of God begin to walk into humility, when they're moved into action, And when they begin to die to themselves. And if I could sum all of that up into one sentence. It would be that grace is made visible when the people of God live with an open-handed generosity. Where they see all that they have and all of their abilities and all of their time as being owned by the creator. And they are simply stewards or managers. Unfortunately, what I see in the church often Is people just running around doing religious activity that is completely detached from their energy and vitality of the relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what allows us to hide our sin. That's what allows us to to be secret. That's what allows us to live constantly in guilt. That's what allows us to put up masks. It's like being in the desert closest to the greatest water possible and never taking a drink. And that's so many of us, and that's what allows us to just simply make church a box that we go to, rather than being the church. But folks, when we be the church, when we, when we make grace visible in the world, look at what God's response is in verse 8. Then your light will break out like the dawn, and you will be healed quickly. Your own righteousness will walk before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. When Christians have been moved by grace to extend grace, the light of Christ is seen and acknowledged in the world. Then the the New Testament idea of being salt and light is visible. I mean, just think about what we've seen a couple of weeks ago. All we were talking about was evil and darkness. And over the last week, what have we been talking about? Neighbor, helping neighbor, the light of Christ is made visible, and your light will break out like the dawn. He goes before us. Remember the idea of provenient grace. He goes before us, but this scripture also tells us that his glory is, that his, his glory is our rear guard. We are literally surrounded by the grace of God. On those days when I wake up and I try with the power of the Holy Spirit to do and be completely obedient, but yet I fall woefully short. I know wherever I go, God is ahead of me and God is behind me. God is there, unwavering, unmoved, ferociously committed to me because of Jesus Christ. And then we get to verse 9, which is really awesome. Look at this. It says, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, I'm here. Now, before you think that I am drifting into prosperity gospel, let me tell you something. There are some things that I cannot promise you. I cannot promise you that by submitting your life to Jesus Christ, that everything is going to go the way you want it. I can't promise you that when you submit your life to Jesus Christ that you're going to have a good marriage. That you're going to have health and a long life. I can't promise you that you're not going to struggle. I cannot promise you that you're going to have a bank account that is full of money. I can't promise you that your children and your grandchildren are going to grow up and know the Lord. I can't promise you any of these things. But I can promise you what God promises you. When you cry out, you will hear, I'm here. See, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that by following him we get what we want. The good news of Jesus Christ is that regardless of the circumstances, we get God, and God will be enough. And on that day of trouble, we cry out, God is there. He is ever-present. He is ever-chasing. He is ever-hoping. He is, His Holy Spirit is sustaining us and empowering us. That's how he blesses those of us who are saturated in grace. He is present. Now, one of the dangers of Isaiah 58, as you read it, you can think, well, I just need to work more with the hungry. I need to do more for the flood victims. But before we do that, let's let's look at how the text ends. Let's look at verses 13 through 14. It says, if you stop trampling the Sabbath, stop doing whatever you want on my holy day and consider the Sabbath a delight, sacred to the Lord, honored. And honor it instead of doing your, things your way, seeking what you want and doing business as usual. Then you will take delight in the, door, the Lord. I will let you ride on the heights of the earth. I will sustain you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, the prophet ends this, with stop trampling on the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? See, generosity is not achieved by a bunch of activity. Generosity is birthed in the quietness of heart that has learned to rest in God regardless of the circumstances. There's rest when we slow ourselves down, meditate upon his word, and believe what he has said is true. That we are his. We are his children. He He is unwavering in his commitment to us as his children, that's the Sabbath. It's not a vacation. It's not a day off. Sabbath is a spot where we stop and we rest in who God says we are. It's, it's very interesting that what drives Christian action is not just a command to Christian action. But rather it's a heart deeply transformed by what God has said about us. Here's the truth I, I will never stop pushing us as a church to move outside the walls, to go and reach new people, to go and help those in need. But let me tell you why. Because I have been broken. I have been hurt. And then I met Jesus Christ. And I have been forgiven. I know I'm loved. I know that I am his child. I know he is committed to me. I know that he delights in me. I know that he sings over me. And I want that for everybody. Do you? Let's pray. Most gracious God, I pray right now for your church. I pray, Lord, that you can help us to... To not just intellectually understand what grace is. But I pray, Lord, that we experience your grace. That we extend your grace. That we make your grace visible in the world. I pray, Lord, that you help us to humble ourselves and die to ourselves. Help us to to be moved to compassion and action. In a way that makes your light visible. That just by simply our acts, people are able to feel your presence and your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.